It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Back with us is Morgan Paxia, Founding Partner and Chief Investor at Poseidon Asset Management. Morgan, thanks again for being back on The Talking Hedge. Thank you for having me back. Appreciate it. So uh, for those that don't know, Poseidon was founded by siblings Emily and Morgan Paxia back in 2013, making their first fund one of the longest running decade cannabis, uh, dedicated cannabis investment funds. The Poseidon team is focused on a diversified strategy covering a range of company stages and industry subsectors across the cannabis capital spectrum. And so looking at historical context, you guys started out as one of the earliest dedicated cannabis investment funds. Can you share some insights to kind of just bring us to a baseline about how the cannabis industry has evolved since then? Sure. Well, funny enough, Emily was just realizing uh, we passed our 10-year mark for our first EIN. So uh, that just happened this past month. Um, so just to give some context that, yeah, 10 years in this industry is, uh, <laughs> it's been anything but a uh, constant, you know, it's just been, a, if you think back to, uh, that October, as we were, you know, getting ready to hit the ground running for January one with, uh, you know, Colorado's doors opening. And, um, but at that point, you know, before the first fund opened to outside capital, there was $0 in adult use legal sales. So, you know, try to, try to picture that. Right. And and just how we had no idea what the landscape was going to be like, how things were going to evolve, mature, change. No idea. Um, it was just all white space. So just pretty amazing. Uh, and we dove right in. So, you know, at that time, it was just really thinking about building out a very uh, diverse kind of strategy, trying to probe a lot of different areas, see how things would work, what what was scalable, what were TAMs like, because there, you know TAM was not a word that was familiar in cannabis yet, and um, yeah, and so just over time, we just slowly were focused on certain markets, you know, early on, and then because that was before the even the term MSO, you know, the multi-state operator acronym was around, and um, this was before Canada was even legal, right? It had a, a pretty great medical market. Um, we were very early in Canada too. So, you know, now today we have what something like a $30 billion industry. We've had no federal reform. If anything, it's been, you know, constant federal headwinds. Um, and, uh, but we, we soldier on. So, you know, one thing I would say that's been pretty consistent through cannabis is uh, through this 10 years in cannabis has been um, those that are, are dedicated and working hard are, are grinding through this and uh, pushing for the, the ultimate idea of, a, you know, change and, in DC. Um, but everything else, you know, what these state markets look like, what brands look like. I mean, if you think about what the early day pre-roll looks like versus today, you know, it's evolved tremendously. Um, you think about the sophistication and retail, um, you know, from the early days of paper bags, you know, stapled with business cards on them to today where we have these, you know, enterprise technology solutions and data analytics and, you know, AI is, is making its way in the space. So it's been a, one heck of a journey over the last 10 years. What about valuations? Because back in the day, like right now, you could have a football field analysis and take your pick from a half a dozen metrics and 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 go about your way. But back then, uh, 10 years ago, it was like a million years, right? So you had guys chiseling in stone using an abacus and, and all of <laughs> like all of that. Um, mm -hmm. so did you just take smoke signals and convert those into dollar signs or how did, how did valuations work back then? Oof. It was, uh, 
I mean, things were low priced, low valuations, uh, you know, because there was, if you think 10 years ago, we were objectively the only ones. Well, right? well first with, off, is, is everyone making revenue? Because you could just take a discounted cash flow model, no matter what. But back yeah. then, was everyone making revenue? And, and if not, then again, how do you, how do you put a price tag on that? So, um, interestingly, back then, California operators were profitable businesses, and they were doing 10, 20 million in revenue. It was before California screwed it all up with these, you know, the regulations and the taxation it has absolutely destroyed a lot of profit in these businesses, but you can have a profitable business on $10 million. So you just couldn't own equity. There was no equity back then. So we started working with operators on the debt side and we were doing high interest rate loans for expansion capital. And it was a great way for us to learn about these businesses, learn about, you know, margin profiles, um, you know, capbacks, budgets, um, all this stuff that, you know, wasn't available in every other market. We were we were right there in the very early days. So that was very helpful um, for us to learn about the profitability of um, you know operating businesses in California. Um, again, it's very sad to see that go away. You know, you can't make money on ten million dollars. It's, it's kind of crazy uh, if you think about it in almost every other sector. But um, that's kind of the situation in California. Um, and that was before price compression. You know, pricing in California used to also be pretty stable. You know, you'd have the seasonal fluctuations with uh, with the um, outdoor crop hitting the market, and you know, until that would clear through. And um, but it was a pretty narrow band. You know, that would just and it was and you could you could underwrite it. So uh, so we did have that. Uh, it was really when you were starting to get into the these newer markets. You know, the the east of the Mississippi. Uh, markets uh, where valuations started getting pretty wonky um, because there was such a high value placed on just a paper license. Um, but it, again, because if you were able to get open back then in some of these early markets, you know, some of the numbers you could put up were just monstrous. Um, and it still happens today, right? I mean, in New Jersey, you know, there's like what the Cure Leaf door uh, that does what a 60 million run rate. There's the Ascend door, I think uh, something similar-ish, right? Um, or they had the one in, in Illinois. So there are still some big doors and big numbers, but um, but yeah, there's definitely been a, a, a big learning process. Now we have public companies, we have public comps, we have M&A comps, you know, there's just so much more knowledge about the space. But back then, you're right, it was, it was tough um, and trying to, you know, guess. It was really because it was a guessing game in, in a lot of these newer markets. Um, we tried to build that off of our experience again, you know, really trying to base in California. That's why we actually started the firm in California. I, I was on the East Coast. Um, Emily was in San Francisco, but I moved out. Uh, my wife and I moved out to, um, you know, really immerse ourselves in that market. So we do have public markets right now, and yet things aren't really working in individual equities. I, you know, I've, we've mentioned that before, where it kind of just goes with the flow. It's been challenging. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm guessing that that was a huge part of why you decided to shut down the advisor shares dynamic cannabis ETF, the ticker symbol PSDN. But mm -hmm. maybe you can explain on what some of those factors that led to that decision. Yep. Yeah, it was, um, you know, we we are not bullish still on, on federal reform. Um, we don't see this Congress being able to do anything with safe or safer banking. Um, you know, I, I've uh, been pretty, pretty consistent in saying, minimally optimistic or or just not you know or like as close to zero probability as as possible and not that we even think safer banking really does much for most businesses i think the biggest impact of safer banking was the recent addition of clarifying uh credit and debit processing 
but we don't know if that would actually uh, happen, right? Because uh, cannabis, even if we get to this rescheduling to Schedule 3, uh, it's still federally illegal. So Visa MasterCard might still sit on the sidelines. And so it might not actually open up this like panacea of this increased basket size. And that that to me is like where a lot of the, um, you know, potential growth function of safer banking comes from. Um, it's definitely a perception bump, no doubt, uh, because there's a lot of capital on the sidelines that wants the action. You know, they're sick of the talk um, because we just keep hearing talk and we don't see the action. Um, but I do see a lot of capital is, is more excited about Schedule 3. But guess what? We we called the, you know, the shutdown of PSDN, what was it, two weeks before DHHS came out. Um, so, you know, talk about a gut punch for us. Um, but we still got to see that happen. And um, and so we just were not seeing the flows in the space. Um, and as a result, we were not seeing institutional capital coming in. So the sector was still highly correlated. Very low quality companies would move you know, exponentially more than the high quality companies or the higher quality companies. Um, it just didn't seem like a, a, a very good market um, to try to continue to manage through. And without the flows to support it, it was a cost center for us. Um, and and then you know you you layer in so we had all this industry challenges that we were trying to manage through and and uh, and then you layer in all the macro that we were seeing, um, you know, with the the tightening of uh, uh, monetary and fiscal policy. Well, not not fiscal yet, um, but tightening of monetary policy, the raising of interest rates. You know, what could that be for the consumer and what that means? And just felt like a lot of short term headwinds. They're still bullish on cannabis, um, especially high quality companies. Um, but we were just feeling like there was a lot of macro pressures that were going to continue to be a challenge. And look what's happened subsequent to, you know, the HHS news stocks rallied massively in our sector was like, what, up 100 percent, I'd say kind of as in an aggregate. And we're peeling that back day by day by day by day. And it's because nothing has changed. Um, so these companies are still faced with 280E. They're still faced with no federal change. Um, there's been a bunch of chatter, but we need the DEA to do uh, follow suit, and we need clarity on that um, to really change how these businesses can be. So, in the meantime, we still have companies that are a lot of companies, unfortunately, that are over leveraged and overtaxed. And so, there's still we still see a lot of, you know, stress for you know the lower quality businesses. Um, it's great for the higher quality businesses, but you know, we're just point is we're still going through a cycle, and and um, and so we just thought it was in the best interest of the of the shareholders, including ourselves, right? I owned a personally owned a, quite a bit. And, um, you know, so that it was, it was very unfortunate. Um, it was a tough call, um, but we ultimately think it was the right call. So it sounds like you're not gonna make any decisions based on the potential of federal legalization. You're gonna assume that it's not happening when, when you make your investment decisions. Um, and, and that's not gonna change until it actually happens, right? You're gonna make moves on, on the news, uh, like a lot of these stocks do. What was one of the main takeaways? Because I would imagine you had your spidey senses honed in on that ETF and the news and the markets and the way things moved more than most. What was mm -hmm. the main takeaway having looked at that um, to the degree you did? I'm I'm assuming you wouldn't do it again. Uh, maybe it's too early. No. Um, but what was some of the main takeaways from the experience that you had? Um. I mean, I, I love what we do on the private side with our private funds and, you know, one of which is a hedge fund that can, it can still participate in public companies. Um, you know, I think it is still as a young industry and, you know, where possible, uh, you know, there is, there's 
select public companies that make a lot of sense long-term potentially. Um, but there's a lot of other types of financing vehicles, structured financing that are also great ways to participate. And, you know, when we had originally launched PSDN, it was this idea that we had had many years ago about the democratization and availability for anyone to participate. Um, and we thought, you know, with our experience and, and, you know, branding that it would be a value to a broader audience, but it, it didn't work out so much, you know, like we, we tried to build a high quality portfolio. Uh, we think, you know, even to the final days of it, it was a very well positioned portfolio, um, you know, with our weightings and everything. Um, it was just uh, obviously in the very short term, uh, you know, it looked like we may have um, missed out a little bit, but at the same time, I just, uh, you know, those, the, the same kind of book is stuff we still look at doing privately and, um, and look to do more of that. Honestly, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, as capital does want to come back to the space that we would be a, a firm to be called upon for, you know, participating on the private side. Um, because yeah, there's just, there's plenty of work to be done. I mean, you know, you look at the industry nationwide and you think about the biggest companies in the space have had to be mostly in neutral for uh, cash preservation and, and um, you know, having to reduce their uh, costs to get to uh, a place where they can survive there's very few that are in gear, you know, there's like the terrorist ends of the world ascend um, GTI, but most are, are stuck in neutral because they're just trying to get their balance sheets in order, get their, you know, PLs in order. Um, but as they start to reaccelerate growth vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, you know, you, you take schedule three um, and the cash flow generation of these businesses allows them to all of a sudden crank up CapEx budgets again, they can start hiring again. We think that can bring in new capital via private equity um, which then can mean, you know, more M&A transactions means more hiring, you know, the ancillary companies start thriving again, you know, like the whole sector just lights up just because of that significant potential shift of overtaxation to, you know, being treated like a normal corporate uh, well, participant in the American economy. Um, so th those are all great things that we see on the horizon, but it's that bridge between now and then. Um, you know, that we're just trying to be very mindful of. And, um, you know, we've, you know, it was really unfortunate for the time we launched. If you think about when we launched ETF, a lot of people were like, oh yeah, that's great. You know, the market's already down a bunch. And then, and then the sector went on to go down another 80%. So, um, you know, just a hell of a drawdown sector wide. And, you know, there's been a lot of discourse around what are the drivers of that. And, you know, there are some structural inputs, I would say around CSC dynamics. Um, but if the CSC wasn't, open to the US operators, we wouldn't have a multi-state operators as we do today, you know? So there's like a, a little bit of a, um, you know, as Emily always says, what is it? Um, what nurtures you also destroys you kind of thing, I think is how she says it. And uh, I think that's the saying, um, but at the same time, these companies, you know, when you think about the drawdown we went through, there were also some very different market dynamics that happened, right? There was a massive slowdown, the capital markets froze for us. As I mentioned, so all these companies had to go to neutral. So the growth left the space. Um, you know, there was a lot of perception implications around that. So, you know, with massive price declines. Um, so, you know, we've just, we've really been through a lot in the last two and a half, three years as a sector. And there's healing to go with that. I mean, if you think about the correlation to like the NASDAQ bubble and the subsequent burst, it took years for, you know, tech stocks to become cool again, right? I mean, you think about, I remember, you know, investing in 2002, 2003, 2000, you know, through 2008, you know, there was very few companies 
in, t in the tech world that people wanted to talk about at all. It was like Amazon and, and Apple, right? People, if you think about like Microsoft, no one even cared to talk about Microsoft until just a few years ago. I think it was like a $20 stock for years. <laughs> so um, anyway, point is, is like, you know, the healing pour uh, on the backside of a, a bubble burst like that, um, it's a process. Yeah, and, and I'm wondering with, um, you said democratization and, and uh, getting people to, that wouldn't otherwise have access to it. Uh, so I'd like to say, you, you know, just because you were early doesn't mean you're wrong, but financially it probably doesn't equate. Um, but having said that, you know, you did try to give people access. So when I was managing a $650 million fund at, at Capital One, I saw Goldman Sachs five years in a row, never lost a single trade, single day losing. And it mm -hmm. bugged me. It's that's not fair. It's not equitable. It's and so I finally met my business partner who who was running an MA, ML and AI hedge fund. And so bringing Wall Street technology to Main Street, it, it it was it was a battle because I saw it as like this this tool that wasn't really fair. But hey, if we can bring it to the masses and everyone can use it, then then why not? So mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm wondering what your take is on that. So with AI now at our fingertips with ChatGPT, it's literally an app, the open AI app that you can use. I got some cheesy slogans that you're probably not going to want to use for uh, Poseidon, like we're the weed whisperers. ChatGPT <laughs> also came up with another slogan for you guys that said, we're making waves in the cannabis industry. And then this is, the, this is the worst one though. Our ROI, reef of investments is unbelievable. <laughs> Oh man! Like, yeah, you're not. Yeah, it's it's, it's scary how, how comedians uh, aren't aren't gonna. They're they're not they're not worried about their jobs being taken away anytime soon. But what role do you? But quite think, punny. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's got some good dad jokes in there. What yeah. role do you think AI and technology has at this point? Oh, I, I mean, one of our companies is already you know getting you know pretty deep into the in. There's not deep into the weeds on it. Um, and they're already starting to roll out some products around it, which is super exciting. I don't know if you've, if uh, you're, you know, staying close with the headset, um, you know, roadmap, but uh, you know, they've got some new functions coming out that are AI driven uh, around some of their brand uh, analytics, which is super cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think retail is one of the areas of our industry that we're, we're really, you know, interested in, um, you know, we're still deploying capital out of our third fund, uh, venture fund. Um, and and with a heavy emphasis on retail, um, we just see there's a lot of same source sales growth opportunities uh, via optimization. AI is certainly a part of it. Um, we do think that you know just um, doors in the box uh, are lacking. Um, you know there's just more to go. Uh, so you know we just think there's yeah it's it's a really interesting time and and you know these tools and um, you know more sophistication around that uh, will only help drive. Uh, again, more dollars and more dollars against fixed costs. Guess what that means? More profit, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, so we just see that as as a really interesting part of our space. Um, even with um, you know some of the price compression cycles that you go through when you have arguably a commodity product for the most part, because uh, there's only so many brands that truly have pricing capability, which is true in, in other you know obviously in other commodity like markets. Um, but in our space, I mean, there's just, there's still is a lot of brand volatility, right? So the retail is, is an area that we think is, is very interesting, but having those kind of AI tools, and that's just one area that, that comes to mind from that question. I think, you know, then you start looking at some of our other 
technology companies that are working in the, on the grow side, like, um, you know, Adavi, which is a, a young company of ours in the garden fund, um, you know, they're using AI and trying to help with the, uh, with grow be better, um, you know, trying to mitigate issues early um, so that they can have more consistency, higher quality um, production. And um, so I, yeah, obviously that's phenomenal uh, as, as you know, mentioning about the, the price volatility or price compression, you know, those that don't have crop failure have certainly a higher probability of success than those that have crop failure um, in declining prices, right? Because it's just, it's just crushing. So yeah, I mean, technology is, is certainly a play to help that. Um, I think overall, um, there's probably, we are pretty well uh, um, situated with most tech in the space. So any new tech really truly has to be um, disruptive. If it's just additive, it's dilutive, uh, which I know is kind of a funny saying, but because capital still is so scarce, um, I believe that. Uh, so, you know, we don't need another point of sale company, right? We don't need another uh, HCM company. We don't need, a, you know, another data analytics company. It's got to be, it's got to be something that's truly um, not present um, that is needed uh, because these operators themselves don't want to bear another cost. They don't want to bear another, you know, username and password and something else they got to pay for every month if it's not truly something that they need for their business. Um, and AI can play in that space, right? Because AI just helps with a with that kind of efficiency and and growth. So I do want to ask you about the potential for rescheduling. I know we're not holding mm -hmm. our breath. We're not going to wait for it, but but it is interesting to see kind of like that 100% pop that that uh, you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. uh, on on equities. So when when looking at some of the valuations or or multiples rather the enterprise value to EBITDA multiple ratio that indicates the market value for the company's earnings before interest taxes depreciation amortization that rose from 7 uh, 5.7x to 7.9x in just a week, uh, which is fairly significant. So that means that investors are willing to pay almost 40% more for the company's earnings after the announcement. Then we mm -hmm. look at the market to book ratio that compares uh, the company's market value to book value or net assets. That's a 63% increase that happened after the rescheduling news came out where it was at 0.8x, went up to 1.3x, suggesting that the market's now valuing those companies at a premium compared to their assets just because of the potential for rescheduling. So in the historical context, that one week, um, in just one week, that's that's the biggest jump in over three years. So kind of mm -hmm. underscoring the magnitude of the market's reaction to potential rescheduling announcement, wondering if that's FOMO, is that uh, a systematic underpricing across the board of these valuations? What do you, I know what your thoughts are on federal legalization or rescheduling that might not happen, might not impact um, companies, but the perceived value, or at least from this is showing me that that could change significantly. Um, what are your projections? Um, well, I would go with all of the above. You know, there was, uh, if you think about where the market was before that announcement, where it had, it had fallen to, Right. To your point of like it got to just, you know, very, very low valuation to EBITDA. Um, our friends of ours at uh, I don't know if you've heard of Excelsior Equities they are a newer firm that's, uh, you know, entered the space. Um, they've done some initial coverage. I think GTI Village Farms are some of their two initial uh, pieces that they're doing coverage on. Um, but they are uh, not only talking about um, EBITDA, but 
EBITDA, which is uh, earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization. So they strip the T out um, to try to bring it to a more, uh, you know, apples to apples with other industries. Um, and so those, as a consequence, if you think about that, then that means the, the multiples are higher, right? Because if, if you don't get the benefit of the, um, you know, because EBITDA mm -hmm. could be a little bit misleading because of mm -hmm. the um, tax, you know, 280 taxes. So mm -hmm. when you look at a, on an EBITDA basis, um, a bit better. I mean, it's it's overly punitive in, in the other direction, um, but it's much more close to reality than the former. Um, so I like that, um, you know, kind of analysis. Um, something we try to talk about is, you know, the or trying to impute like an effective tax rate, which we actually used to run uh, on all these multiples, um, which, you know, if you think about it, it's, much closer to EBITDA, maybe like, you know, adding uh, a 20% discount to that, right, would get you in the much more in the ballpark. Anyway, point is, um, uh, valuations arguably had gotten maybe too low, um, certainly overshot. Um, what was that? That was a mix of FOMO. That was a mix of short covering, because there, there was a tremendous amount of short uh, there was, you know, just a flood. And, and that's, unfortunately, is like, you, you can look over time uh, on the stock charts, you can see these, these uh, pretty uh, significant bumps that have come along the way as it still has been, a, you know, unfortunately, a, you know, a long downtrend. But every time there's like some potential movement, um, you know, their excitement comes flooding in. And then the subsequent waning when there is not the follow through of the action to actually make the change. Um, so, to your point, yeah, it was the biggest jump and biggest multiple expansion, but now look at it just coming right back. Um, so it's it's as quickly as it went up as it's coming back. Um, I hope we don't go all the way back to where we were. Um, you know, you'd think that this is potentially more measurable from a, a probability of change perspective, purely about rescheduling, not at all about safer banking. Um, it's really unfortunate, just as a quick side note, that there are some folks in our industry um, that keep telling capital to wait for safer banking mm. to then get involved. Um, I truly don't understand that, uh, that argument because we cannot and we do not know when the federal government will finally make change uh, around some of these initiatives. And guess what? If we get a rescheduling and what if we get something like a coal memo come back into the mix then, then what do we really even need safer banking? You know what I mean? So this is kind of my position has been, and our position has, has really been that um, something else is going to happen before the federal government, before Congress actually takes the necessary action. And so their action will just be symbolic because we'll, we'll largely have moved beyond them. And that's just kind of how things function anyway, right? I mean, DC is kind of the last of the party when uh you know with how you know how private industry works well i think it's interesting you have safe harbor financial that's publicly traded in their cannabis banking so you, they're not worried about their banking charter being taken away so why would you wait right. that doesn't make any sense banking's already out there it's not we need interstate commerce more than we need banking um when you look yeah we need we need tax reform uh, we need that i mean that's wait. like uh uh, that's mission critical. Interstate commerce is going to add a, a whole heck of a, a new round of volatility in our space where you're going to have a massive loss of uh, uh, invested capital and a lot of markets and a lot of job losses and then jobs repositioned in, in other markets. You know what I mean? So it's just going to cause a lot of volatility. Um, mm -hmm. Potentially. We don't know, right? That's, we, that's we, need just it, kind we need of additional, 
yeah, we need some of that competition though. There's it's there's too much trash in the industry, so some of that needs to go away anyways. So when you can bring some good genetics and good growers to show these other people who've been winning cannabis cups that grow trash, that they just need to go away. Uh, that's gonna that's only gonna happen with interstate commerce. Yeah, but there right. there is some cultivation and retail that's been selling uh, in the last four to six weeks. I uh, don't know if it had anything to do with the news, but then behind that, hemp seems to have uh, some some acquisition or or M and A activity as well, followed by I think it was uh, media or or tech or something. Um, where do you see the cannabis investment market kind of evolving now that that there's been some FOMO added back into it with with the research? Well, right. Well, we the the you know the the mantra of follow the flows, and we really haven't seen the flows. I mean, all the flow that has come into like some of the industry ETFs is not institutional largely. Um, it's, it's individuals, um, you know, as, or known as retail investors, kind of like the, the, you know, the common moniker. Um, so it really hasn't changed the dynamic. I mean, you, you haven't seen the, the major operators at least are not, uh, they've not notably changed any of their behavior um, outside of, you know, the cannabis uh, was, was able to get a little bit of capital raised to retire some debt. You saw truly buying back their debt, um, you know, at 75 cents on the dollar, um, you know, showing, trying to show a lot of confidence about where their future, their business is going. Um, you know, you saw Cureleaf do a, a very modest equity raise to satisfy their application for the TSX, um, which, you know, seems like, um, I don't know why it wouldn't go through, but, you know, it's not, not a done deal yet, but it's in process. Um, you know, so there's like little bits of activity happening, um, but M&A is very, has been very quiet. Uh, and, you know, from our perspective, we think the industry as after, you know, two and a half, three years or, or whatever, this capital crunch and has been in this like safe mode, right? You know, and your computer has problems. I don't, I don't know if that still exists, but for those of us that remember what, <laughs> what that means, you know, where it's like limited functionality and just kind of like trying to get things back. But, you know, I think a big push for us has been getting back to growth and trying to get, um, you know, operators and, and companies to feel like it's okay to you know, take a little bit of risk, you know, it's been so afraid to take risk. And so, you know, to see an M&A cycle, um, we think there's a lot of opportunity in M&A. Um, but, you know, as much as we're bullish on M&A, we're also terrified by it, because it can also be a huge capital destroyer. Um, because when you have financial engineers and not, not operators, you know, shepherding these things where you're not really getting the efficiencies, you're not unlocking the growth. Um, who does that make money for? It makes money for the bankers and the lawyers. It doesn't do anything for you know the shareholders and doing uh, you know shareholder creation. So, um, but we think that it makes sense. You know that you know like as you mentioned, there's some that have been right. Terrasen has probably been the most on offense this year with um, not only balance sheet work but also acquisitions. They're very targeted with Mar uh, Maryland. I mean, it's incredible what they've done uh, in a very short amount of time there. You know, I mentioned Ascend as well as you know, been doing some acquisitions. So they are, there is some happening. Uh, and I do think it makes a, a heck of a lot more sense that they're focusing on individual uh, acquisitions. Um, you know, the idea of blockbuster acquisition, I think it's probably very early for our space for that to be a high probability of success. I think it's it's very easy for it to be terrible. I mean, the Cresco Columbia Care or, or the cannabis now, you know, that one was just kind of felt like doomed from the get-go because it was just way too big, way too complicated uh, with all of the, the vestures and, and, you know, everything that they were trying to do. Um, 
you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, truly even harvest is one that is also kind of a case study of, you know, troubled, you know, blockbuster deals. So these smaller ones, um, certainly from the idea of like getting used to taking some risk again and, and putting some balance sheet at risk uh, for the benefit of the uh, of your shareholders, you know, we are starting to see some of those elements. Um, to your point, the tech side has been more, much more in consolidation mode, um, but most of those are private companies. So they just don't get talked about in the press very much, but we see it in our portfolios. Um, we see about, you know, with our colleagues that, you know, have uh, venture funds that have been in some of these companies that have been getting consolidated. And we think that is a good thing, right? Because a lot of the tech in our space, you know, you're doing 2 million, 5 million kind of ARR, uh, which is uh, annualized revenue uh, run rate. Um, you know, so they might be doing less than that on an actual revenue dollars. It's, you know, kind of a projected look, but, you know, these businesses have also had to go to cash flow neutral or cash flow positive. And if you think about the grander scheme of VC, you know, they're not thinking about cash flow neutral or cash flow positive until they are, you know, multiple times bigger. So this is kind of forcing a little bit of, uh, um, you know, aggregation maybe earlier, uh, trying to build bigger, more durable businesses. Um, and so, you know, those that are able to do it on the tech side could, you know, make some really interesting businesses at, at more scale and, and do so that's uh, with way less invested capital, which is which is actually good for shareholders, obviously, if there's, you know, lower amount of invested capital to generate a higher uh, exit value, that's great. That's, that's what we're all trying to do. Um, so we are seeing a bit of that. Um, the hemp side is interesting because, you know, hemp, I feel like has been migrating a lot, right? Where there were businesses that were initially trying to do um, that were originally trying to do CBD have now been branching into these alternative cannabinoids, right? The HHCPs or the THCAs or what, you know, all these like more psychoactive like uh, um, effects because, you know, they're realizing like the consumer is is looking for more and the farm bill has kind of given this little bit of cover where they've felt pretty comfortable with uh, expanding into that. So what is it this year? I think is, is it a $2.8 billion industry uh, in that space out of nowhere? Um, so, you know, that's I also I just see how the market is trying to respond to unmet needs um, that otherwise we're, you know, just not seeing that kind of development or, or growth on the on the CBD side. So as a result, you know, maybe we'll see some more consolidation there, but I feel like that market is a little bit of still in its wild west phase. And there still is a lot of concern or consternation, you know, whatever you want to say about, you know, is that a permanent part of our industry? Uh, I don't know. We don't know because, you know, the farm bill could could get, you know, where is it? It's it, it could actually, you know, be modified or, you know, has to get, I don't remember the exact legislative implications, but things could change there. This is kind of my my point. And um, uh, my fear or our, our fear is that the response is to ban it. And I think that is completely against the whole idea of legalization where we already have all this infrastructure for to tax and regulate than to ban it. So why wouldn't you just add, you know, the you know inclusion of of these alternative cannabinoids into the licensed legal market and let the consumer decide, not have, you know, these states just do these this banning kind of stuff. But it's just been a very interesting time. I mean, we were just talking about yesterday how the state of California banned Skittles. What the hell are we doing? Like it's just like nonsense. So anyway, I 
I'm for, I'm pro business. I'm pro, you know, sensibility. Um, and so just trying to think about what makes more sense. Yeah. Well, if there's anybody that's pro Poseidon, how can they get a hold of you guys? Where are you guys at? If they want to learn a little bit more, check out what you guys are doing. Oh man, we are busy bodies, right? We we're on, we're on Twitter or X as it is these days. We're on LinkedIn. We've got our, our website, Poseidon.partners. Emily's got her uh, kick-ass podcast with Sai called The High Rise, uh, you know, the, which is great content. Um, I'm doing a podcast in the Twitter spaces with uh, uh, um, the Water Tower Research, um, Jesse Redman uh, and uh, Toby. Um, so we're doing that. Um, so we're, we're out there. Um, you know, we're at the events too. Patrick right now is like in New Jersey at the there's a New Jersey cannabis event. Um, uh, we were just at Benzinga. So, yeah, we're out there in, in real life, but you can also find us on the internet. Sounds good. And I'll leave Poseidon's uh, information in the show notes. But with that, I think we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, cool. Morgan Paxia, founding partner and chief investor at Poseidon Asset Management. Morgan, thanks again for being on The Talking Hedge. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm Josh Kikade. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Cool. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.